right. I couldn't help but notice the applause was less for me than the band, but that's all right. That's all right. If you've got your Bible today, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 14, and that's where we're going to be uh, today for, for kind of a New Year's message. So uh, I, I didn't get to see you last week, so Merry Belated Christmas and Happy Preemptive New Year. And uh, it's, it's good to see many of you uh, today. I want to start with kind of a dangerous question, uh, a risky question, and the question is this, as you're turning to, to Matthew chapter 14, what was the worst, or if, if you're in a happier mood, I suppose, we could also go, the best present, Christmas present, anniversary present that you have ever received? The worst or the best? Maybe the worst, maybe it's that, that first anniversary when you got that, that incredible uh, vacuum cleaner that was, was very thoughtful. The worst present or, or sort of the opposite, the best present that you've ever received. And as I was thinking about this question uh, for myself and thinking about all the questions or all the presents, sorry, over the years that we, you know, we received at our house or were given at our house, there was one that sort of stood out. And, and this is something that for next Christmas, um, if you have a, a wife, if you have a fiance, uh, a girlfriend, you might want to keep this one in mind. Um, this is one of my all-time favorite presents. Uh, it's called the Billy Big Mouth Bass. I don't know if any of you remember this. Anybody have one of these? A few of you? Okay, good. You're not going to believe it. This was on sale for $8 at Gans Flea Market, which I think makes Billy the new Bitcoin. Just, just throwing that out there. It's not too late to get in. Uh, this is the Billy Big Mouth Bass. My kids have been waiting to, to, to do this, but they haven't had a chance to do it yet. Uh, we got these, uh, one of these in our house. And if you're, if you're not familiar with Billy, um, it's essentially looks like a dead fish. Um, it looks like a mounted, uh, you know, sort of taxidermied fish until the, the crucial moment. And that's the moment that you either press the button or in one of the crueler twists of fate, the motion detection sensor and the bass springs to life and will sing to you. Uh, there's two songs here. I think it's uh, Take Me to the River. And what's the other one? What's it say here? Um, we're just going to have to find out. Let's see. Don't worry, be happy. That's right. And so that's uh, perhaps one of the greatest Christmas presents of all time. But so that's the, it's in some ways, I was thinking about this. Uh, this will be the worst segue in the history of sermons. But in some ways, it's, it's sort of the redneck equivalent of a famous thought experiment from physics called Schrodinger's Cat. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Schrodinger's Cat. There's a few people from the research center that are nodding, and uh, this is a, it's a risky move. It's trying to connect with people who bought Billy Big Mouth Bass and also know quantum physics. So um, Schrodinger's Cat slash fish is a famous thought experiment. This guy named Erwin Schrodinger wrote a letter to Albert Einstein back in the day, and he was wrestling with this, this question in quantum physics where there was something called a superposition. And a superposition posited that it was possible for matter to exist simultaneously in these sort of two different states. I'm probably butchering this. I'm sorry if you work at the research center. Uh, and, and, and so in Schrodinger's cat, his thought experiment, he's posited that it was possible in quantum physics to devise an experiment where a cat would be simultaneously alive or dead. And so his question was, was sort of, if you could boil it down to the word when, when, 
and I, I looked this up on Wikipedia so I know it's correct, when does a system stop existing as a superposition and become one or the other? When does the cat become definitively dead or alive, or, or in our case, the fish? And it was a difficult question to answer, and he kind of argued with Einstein, but with regard to the fish, it has a very simple answer. It's, it's when you push the button. That's, that's when it happens. That's when the magical moment happens. And so uh, you, you sort of, where in the world is this going? Here's, here's where we're going. I want to talk today about gifts. I want to talk about sort of the ordinary and the extraordinary quantum physics kind of bends our minds in that direction. And I want to talk about this question, when? The when question. And so the question is this, when in our lives does the ordinary, the realm of the ordinary end and the realm of the extraordinary begin? When does the natural become what we sometimes call the supernatural? When does the, the mundane become miraculous. And it's a question that, that matters. It's important for our view of God, our view of his world, um, and how we come to know God. I saw an article and there's a satirical Christian website called the Babylon Bee. It's like the onion for Christians. And it had this story this week. Local atheist demands evidence for God, comma, besides entire universe. And, and the, the headline read, <laughs> Local, this is satire, by the way. Local atheist Tommy Peterson has published a Facebook post demanding that God show him proof of his existence, comma, quote, besides all the material things that could not have existed without an ultimate cause, end quote. <laughs> and so the joke, the joke sort of centers on this, that the things that we think of as ordinary, as mundane, as natural, actually in some ways, are miraculous, are extraordinary, are, are supernatural in their, in their origin and in their existence. Where or when does the ordinary end and the extraordinary begin? And I want to talk about this in the context of the new year and how we think about how we order our lives in a new year, the gift of a new year, how we think about our time, and, and the way that we, we order our lives. And so with that question in mind, Matthew 14. It's a passage, fittingly, that has to do with some fish and, and some bread. It says this. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. And he gave them 
the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people, and they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. This is God's word. We read this passage recently in a, in a faculty meeting, and a, a colleague of mine who fittingly uh, did his PhD on quantum physics asked me this question. And, and, and his question was very, very simple. Josh, when did the miracle happen? When did it happen? Right? Jesus says, okay, we got, we got these five little pieces of bread. We got these two fish, right? And, and the, he, he says, disciples, you give them something to eat. It, it says in the passage that he, he blessed them. It says he broke the bread. It says he gave it to the disciples. And presumably they, they passed it around. And everybody, everybody, 5,000 people plus more was fed, and there was so much left over that they had to gather it up in baskets. And so his question was, when did that magical moment happen where it was multiplied? When did the miracle happen? Was it, was it in the, the blessing, the breaking, the giving, the passing? And my question, my answer, which is often my answer when my colleagues in physics ask me things, is, I don't know. <laughs> the passage doesn't say when the miracle happened. And in fact, in, in, in regard to today's message, that's the entire point that I want to get across. The one single idea that I want to convey today is very, very simple. The big idea is this. With Jesus, it is often hard to tell where the ordinary ends and the extraordinary begins. With Jesus, I'll say it again, it is often hard to tell where what we would call the ordinary, five loaves and two fish, ends and the extraordinary begins. Where the mundane becomes the miraculous, where the natural becomes the supernatural, it's sometimes hard to tell. And I'll give you some examples because it's not just this one passage. It's actually the whole um, sort of spectrum or arc of Jesus' life. Let's talk about his body. If you look at Jesus' physical body, we know from the scriptures, it says in Isaiah 53, prophecy about the Messiah, it says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In other words, he looked like an ordinary guy. He looked ordinary. And yet we know from Christian belief that he was 100% God and 100% man. It was impossible to tell. It was difficult to tell where the ordinary, what we call the ordinary, left off and the extraordinary began. Let's look to his biography, his bio. The people that were closest to Jesus, his mother and his brothers. His mother especially, heard, she heard the angels. She, she, 
she had some sense of who he was, but we know from his biography that at one point his mother and his brothers come to haul him away. They want to institutionalize him in one sense because they think he's crazy. We know that his brothers, guys like James, did not believe in him as the Messiah until after the resurrection. Because in his biography, apparently, although he lived without sin, it was difficult for people like James to see where the ordinary ended and the extraordinary began. Let's look at his bride, his church. (laughs) When you look at the followers of Jesus, one of the things that the scripture says about us Christians is that we are the radiant, spotless bride of Christ, filled with the very presence of God, with the Spirit of God. And yet I don't see a single halo in the room. We look ordinary. Some of us struggle with ordinary struggles. All of us do. Because with Jesus, whether we're talking about his body, his biography, or his bride, it is difficult to tell where the ordinary ends and the extraordinary begins. Let's talk about his world. I was going to find another B, like biosphere, and then I was just going to go full on like Baptist preacher with all the same letter, but didn't do that. His world. When you look at the world, the, the, the story we put up earlier from the Babylon Bee, I mean, it, what we call the natural world contains mysteries and miracles that bend the minds of the greatest scientists who've ever lived. We look at the natural world. The things that we call ordinary are in many ways extraordinary. St. Augustine talked about the water into wine. In the 4th century, I preached about that last time I spoke. And he said the reality is that God turns water into wine every single day across the world. And it is every bit as miraculous as when he did it at the wedding feast of Cana. He does it through sunlight, through photosynthesis, through rain, through human beings that harvest crops and crush the grapes. He turns the ordinary into the extraordinary every day, whether we're talking about his body, his biography, his bride, his world. It's tough to tell where the ordinary ends and the extraordinary begins. And this, if if we're really honest, this is frustrating. It's frustrating. Because we often, often we, we want proof of God's existence. We want sort of mathematical proof, and it's frustrating sometimes that the ordinary bleeds into the extraordinary. I I heard Andy Stanley preach a sermon one time about leaders, people who make a difference, difference makers in history, and he said this, when you talk to leaders, oftentimes they will tell you in, in hindsight that they didn't know the thing that they did that would make the biggest difference until years after they had done it. Have you ever found that? Like, you didn't know the decision that you made that would be the most impactful until years, years later. And that can be really frustrating. That the things that we do that maybe seem inconsequential that later end up being incredibly consequential. Like some of you as parents, you're like, you, you're, you know, gathered around at the holidays or something and your kids are telling stories and you're like, like, that's the thing that scarred you? Like, I, I, I did way worse 
did way worse than that. <laughs> I started a worship service when I was like a sophomore in college. We, all the chapel services at that time were kind of led by professors and there was organ and choir and the students didn't really connect. And I started this sort of student-led worship service on Sunday nights where students would lead worship and they would give a devotional, they would preach. And I came back to work at the same university years later, right? And now it's been like almost, oh, geez, a long time. And that Sunday night worship service that I started when I was a sophomore in college is still going. And I was talking to students. They were like, that was just one of the coolest things on campus is this, this service called the altar. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> a couple of us just started that on a whim. And it's apparently like still chugging along years later. And so many other things that I tried to do are in the dustbin of history, Right? In many cases, you don't know the thing that you'll do, the decision you'll make that will make the biggest difference until years later because with Jesus, it's hard to tell where the ordinary ends and the extraordinary, the miraculous, the supernatural, the momentous begins. And so... Given that as sort of the big idea today, I just want to make some applications, some like hopefully practical applications for the gift of a new year based on that, that one sort of simple, simple big idea. And so here's the first one, sort of rooted in this passage that we just read. The first one is this. This year, I would challenge you to open yourself to divine opportunities that come dressed as human annoyances. (laughs) Open yourself to divine, miraculous opportunities that come dressed as very human, mundane annoyances. And I don't know if you've ever, you say, Josh, prove it. (laughs) Prove that that's the way divine opportunities come. I don't know if you've experienced this, but in many cases in my life, miracles masquerade as interruptions. Miracles masquerade as inconvenient interruptions. And we see it in this passage. We'll put the text, the beginning of the text up on the screen. It says this, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. You say, well, what had happened that made him want to withdraw, to be all alone, to be away from the crowds? And if you look just a little bit higher up on the page in your Bible, you learn that what had happened was that one of his best friends, his cousin, he says the greatest man ever born of woman, John the Baptist, had been brutally murdered. He'd been beheaded by a wicked king, a guy by the name of Herod Antipas, in this just macabre, unjust turn of events, and Jesus was crushed. And he just wanted to get away from the crowds, the people that had been following him and and, and pleading with him for miracles and wanting to hear from him. It says he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. But hearing this, the crowds, like there's sort of, you know, this sort of first century paparazzi, follow him, it says. 
They followed him on foot from the towns, and when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd, and he had compassion on them. I don't know how many of you, perhaps even over the holidays, when we're supposed to be you know, sort of recharging or recuperating or, or just enjoying time with family, I don't know how many of you have ever tried to get away, but life follows you. You try to get away, but life follows you, whether that's in the form of a cell phone that is continually reminding you of, of the things maybe you're trying to get away from, whether that's the news that's continually reminding you, um, emails from work, a sick toddler, conflict in your family, that you, you want to get away to have this sort of peace and this recuperation, but just like with Jesus, life follows you. And, and it, one of the most astonishing things about this passage is when Jesus sees the crowds that have followed him in his grief over the loss of his friend, his cousin, he still has compassion. In the original language, he was filled with, he was just he was filled with this, like, he was moved emotionally with love for the very people that he, a little bit earlier, was trying to get away from. And so hear me say this. Like, there, is, there is 100% a need for us to unplug and to get away and to recharge and to escape the sort of hurry and the bustle of life. But even in the midst of that need, we need to be open to divine opportunities that come dressed up as human annoyances, human inconveniences. Because the reality is with Jesus, it's sometimes hard to know where the ordinary ends and the extraordinary uh, begins. There's an illustration, maybe you've heard it, uh, maybe it's apocryphal, I don't know, of a father years later who goes up to the attic and he finds two journals, two diaries. One is his. And one belongs to his son, Jimmy. And as the story goes, the father found an entry in, in the journal from, from years back. And he, he had written this. The dad had written this. Went fishing with Jimmy. Again, the fish is the reoccurring theme today. Went fishing with Jimmy. Caught nothing. Whole day wasted. End of entry. And he dug through the boxes. He found another journal written by his son. His son had written this. Went fishing with my dad. Best day ever. Opportunities come cloaked as inconveniences, as annoyances, as, as ordinary, mundane moments. My wife has a phrase, she who hinders your task is your task. He who hinders your work is your work. Because with Jesus, it's hard to tell where the ordinary ends and where the supernatural, the miraculous begins. Be open to those opportunities. Number two, second application from this passage. Commit this year to reclaim the ordinary. To reclaim 
the ordinary. In fact, if you want to christen 2018, here's how I would christen 2018. 2018, the year of the ordinary. Because for some of us, the resolutions, I think, can be good. And some of us, we get very amped up. We're gonna, this is what I'm going to do this year. I'm going to do all this. I'm going to make this big, long list. And I'm going to do all of these things. And the tendency is to dream big and to think about these sort of mountaintop experiences. And, and that can be good. But I heard someone say at one point this. Think about this line. We can do no great things. Only small things with great love. The reality is that the things that often matter the most are the things that we sort of chalk up as ordinary, ordinary moments. The future belongs to those who are faithful in the little things. Jesus talks about that in a parable. He talks about those who are faithful with little, that they're given, they're given more. John Wooden, that's a famous basketball coach, UCLA, um, he used to spend the entire first practice of the year teaching his players, get this, how to put on their socks so as to avoid blisters. And it was, in, it was yeah, I mean, it's a sort of ordinary, like who cares about that sort of thing? But if you can care enough to, about the littlest things, then he knew that the biggest things would follow, if you can be faithful in the little decisions, the things where you absolutely know God's will for your life, then what you find in retrospect is that the bigger decisions don't matter quite as much. 2018, the year of the ordinary. Resolutions are, are good. One of the things I, people often sort of bag on resolutions, like, oh, don't, don't do that anymore. But I think one of the things I like about people who make resolutions is it shows they haven't given up yet. <laughs> they still think that maybe change is possible. Like, I'm going to get a gym membership. Let's see how it goes. You know, uh, they show that you haven't given up yet. And so resolutions are good, but change requires habit. Habits. And, and Aristotle has this famous quote where he says, we are what we repeatedly do. We become, we're molded by the little habits, the little things, the ordinary things that we repeatedly do. doesn't mean that you're, you're saved by your works or your deeds or anything like that, but it shows us part of the reason why Jesus cares so much about this, this word, discipleship. That it's not just this intellectual, mental ascent that changes people. It's engaging in these sort of hands-on habits day after day that over time mold us into the people that God wants us to be. Commit this year to reclaim the ordinary moments. And you say, what does that mean? What does that look like on, on the ground? And here's Here's what I would say. Reclaiming the ordinary this year has to do with little habits. Oftentimes, things that we engage in in community, not always, but oftentimes, small habits in community that begin to rewire, and I didn't say our lives, I said our loves. Small habits over time that begin to rewire our love. 
The compassion that Jesus shows to the crowd is not something that happens for the first time in this moment right after the death of his cousin. It's, it's, it's a pattern, it's a habit, it's a, it's a disposition, a posture that he is engaged in repeatedly over time and so that when it's difficult, the habit, the posture continues. So reclaiming the ordinary, one of the things it means is reclaiming little habits, oftentimes in community, that begin to rewire our loves. One of the things that I think is true is that we are always driven by our loves. We're driven by our desires. And so the crucial thing that God wants to do is he wants to rewire our loves and our desires so that they're pointed towards him rather than at other things. So they're pointed towards the ultimate thing and not sort of the, the smaller creation type things. Little habits. Two examples of how we can do this or how we fail to do this. I was reading a, a book recently by a guy named um, James K. A. Smith. And he basically has the same job I do. He's a theology professor up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And he was talking about how his wife had converted him to the gospel of Wendell Berry. I don't know if any of you know Wendell Berry. And he's big on this sort of like changing the way we eat and the way we get our foods. And so this from like farm to table and sort of decreasing that distance and changing the way we get our foods and thinking about food and healthy eating, but also just the way our food is produced. And he talks about how he'd been converted to the gospel of Wendell Berry. And he said he, at one point he was just so engrossed in this Wendell Berry book about bringing it to the table that he looked up from his book and realized he was in the lobby of Costco munching on some chips. And he says there are so many things wrong with that sentence. You don't even know where to begin, right? He was reading Wendell Berry in Costco while his like, wife or somebody got his you know, chips and such. And he says, here's what he says. This is the part that matters. Barry may have successfully recruited my intellect, but he had not converted my habits. He had won over my mind, but my habits, my body, still belonged to the Doritos. Many of us, many of us, the gospel has recruited our minds, but our habits belong elsewhere. It's the little things, the bodily postures, the ordinary things that begin to change us. Bodily habits are greater than mental ascent in so many cases. Second example, Lady Mary Crawley. She did an interview with the New Yorker. This, her, the actress's name is Michelle Dockery. She played Lady Mary Crawley in the show Downton Abbey. And in the show, and she plays this aristocratic woman back in England. And, uh, you know, sort of the old aristocracy is sort of changing. We're moving into a more modern time. And yet they still live in this big mansion. And she wore a corset. And she says this. She talks about how a corset changes your worldview, which I thought, I don't know how that works. And she said this. It really helps you understand how a corset shapes your worldview, the way you breathe and eat. I think it's a big reason that women are less accomplished historically than men. They couldn't actually breathe. <laughs> 
And she talks about how wearing a corset for years changed her posture. The way she, I saw her in another show recently, and she has incredible posture. Um, how it changed her posture, her disposition, and how it gave her an insight into that sort of the struggles of, of women in this age. The problem was you couldn't breathe, right? That physical postures, habits, have incredible influence. It's tough to know where the ordinary ends, the extraordinary begins. Habits, little habits matter. What does that look like for you this year? We move aside the, from the big resolutions and talk about the little ordinary things that maybe God wants to tweak in your life, that, that become miraculous, that become extraordinary, like the bread and the fishes. A few ideas. Just one of these. Just pick one or come up with your own. It doesn't, doesn't have to be one of mine. But uh, if you have kids, what are some of the habits that you need to begin or you want to begin with your kids? One of the ones we started recently, we have a, I bought a, it's called a catechism. Anybody ever heard of a catechism? It's a new catechism that came out. It's called the New City Catechism. And it's, it's just got pictures and all sorts. Of, we started working through the catechism with our kids. And it's just questions and answers about God. And it's sort of modeled off of an older catechism, like the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And so we go through this every night. And it's become part of our bedtime routine after we read a story. And the kids love it because it means they get to stay up an extra five minutes. So it's super popular. And, and so we go through. And the first question is, you know, what is our only hope in life and death? Right? And our kids, could, they could tell you right now. Our only hope in life and death is that we belong, body and soul, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? And we, we like walk through this catechism every night. It doesn't mean that they're going to grow up and be incredible theologians. Or it, doesn't, it just means that we're trying to inculcate these little habits that might become extraordinary or miraculous or important things over time. Reading stories, if you have an iPad or uh, on something called the Bible app. I don't know if you have the Bible app. Uh, if, you're, if you're in a family setting, having dinner at the table with no TV little habits, praying together with your spouse or your friends or your family, actually praying, talking to God, right? joining a small group for the first time. Mike Sorensen's email is in the update. Uh, you've got it probably with you in your seat. If that's something you've never done, these changes, we talked about the habits that happen oftentimes in community. And we're talking about whether that's a workout, whether that's like getting healthy, trying to do that alone versus trying to do that together dramatically affects whether that will be successful or not. The old African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Joining a small group, doing something in community, coming to celebrate recovery on Monday nights, to, to sort of begin to work through over time hurts and habits and, and hangouts. Working out with a friend or a spouse or a group of friends. Little ordinary things. Because the reality is this with Jesus Christ, it is often difficult to tell where those ordinary things end and the extraordinary begins.
where the five loaves and the two fish become something much, much bigger. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of a new year. And we don't take that lightly. We can think of many folks for whom they didn't receive that gift, the people we've lost this year. It's a gift that we weren't promised, that we aren't promised even right now. We pray that this new year we would orient ourselves by your grace and by your spirit towards things that matter, things that are life-giving, even if those things are expressed in very ordinary, little ways. I pray that you would plant a seed in the hearts of maybe every person here, something very ordinary that they won't just resolve to do, but that they will engage in and begin to make a habit in community that will be open to the interruptions, sometimes even the annoyances that become the vehicles for miraculous things to happen in our lives. We thank you that you do that just as you did it 2,000 years ago, that you continue to do it. That we encounter you in the ordinary things of life. And that you transform us. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, that we celebrate this year that is ending and the one that's to come. Amen.